HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, HRN podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, a supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. For more information, visit corin.com. I'm Allison Kane, and welcome to In the Sauce, a podcast about building consumer brands from the ground up. I love doing this show because I get to interview everyone from production gurus to marketing and social media mavens, anyone who can guide me on this crazy journey. This is the story of building Haven's Kitchen sauces, but it's also the story of every growing brand because we're all in the sauce. Today, I'm speaking with Tobias Peggs, co-founder and CEO of Square Roots, the indoor farm tech company on a mission to bring locally grown food to people in cities around the world all year round. Square Roots currently has five climate-controlled indoor farms that use upcycled shipping containers, significantly less water, and a fraction of the land in comparison to conventional field farms. They locate their farms in cities, resulting in shorter supply chains that reduce food miles and help minimize food waste. Tobias was the CEO at Aviary, a mobile photo editing company acquired by Adobe, as well as One Riot, a social media analytics company acquired by Walmart, a true tech guy. Welcome, Tobias. Hello. I'm really thrilled to be here. Thank you for having me on the podcast. Um, You, I think, are my first, like, techie tech tech guy <laughs> your first tech bro i don't know how i feel about that but i think i like you already so you know oh, i think we're gosh. in a good i think we're gonna i think we're gonna be fine um <laughs> but you know i, mean, I, I will try yeah. uh, i sorry i'm doing a bad job already by interrupting you but I, I will try not to be yet another tech bro trying to fix the food system and telling you how, it, how it's done i promise i promise amazing i, promise I really i i love that and already i feel good about this and the thing is i actually it's funny because obviously you know technology is like progress and progress generally is good and helps people and makes things better. Um, so I don't, it's not like, grr, you know, tech it's, I think to your point, it's when, um, 
you know, you have land and, or I guess in your case, not a ton of land, but you have, you know, water and land and labor and whether it's sunlight or some form of light and, you know, life in general tends to be kind of at odds a lot of, you know, in a lot of ways with technology, which seems sort of like super frictionless and very scalable very quickly and kind of very light um, is the way I think about it. You know, one's like heavier and one's just lighter. And I, I think what you're doing is really cool because you're not trying to lay one on top of each other, but you're trying to find where they can have this like sweet spot in the Venn diagram where they, where they do overlap. Um, that's just my little take. Yeah. I, you know, I think that's a really good way of, of thinking about it. You know, if you think about agriculture, especially sort of industrial agriculture over the last decades, there's a lot of technology in there in terms of, you know, pesticides and intensive farming techniques to, to maximize yields. And, you know, sadly that, that, that technology has resulted in a, system where most of the food that we eat is covered in pesticides industrial agriculture is responsible for 30 percent of greenhouse gases um you know it's not really great and and and, you know i think i hope what we're trying to do and we'll get into that later is it's that harmony i often refer to it right the harmony between like the humans and the technology the farmers and the systems that we've built uh creating space for the humans to put the love into right. growing the food as well, even though they're surrounded by the technology that just, you know, means the food tastes better and it's grown in a much more responsible way. So let's talk about that. Um, how, you know, how is the food grown? Let's start with that. I, I do want to get into sort of the background and how you got here, but since you opened it up, I mean, I'm talking about climate controlled indoor farms using upcycled shipping containers, but mm-hmm. I'd like you to tell me Tell me about square roots. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, it's a good description, you know, that you have, right? So square roots is what is known as a controlled environment agriculture company. CEA is the acronym that you'll you'll kind of hear ad nauseum. And essentially, what that means is that we are creating environments, controlled environments, so indoors, that are optimized for growing certain crops. Um, right. So if let's say you wanted to grow basil, for example, right, the, the world's best basil is going to come from the northwest of Italy, right, right. the Genoa region, right. that Genovese basil is what we all love. And there are two ways that you in New York could experience that right now, right? You could either import it from Italy. Right? And it's going to be shipped for thousands of miles. And I don't know what quality of produce you're going to get at the end of that supply chain. And there's going to be a lot of food waste. Um, or instead of shipping the product, you could ship the climate data, which is what we do. Right. So we'll study the climate at peak basil growing season in Italy and understand, OK, well, how long is the sun up for the day? How what is the temperature profile during the day? How cold does it get at night? What is the CO2 level? Right. What's happening with the nutrients? And basically recreate that climate um, indoors. And once you do that indoors, you can then locate that climate literally anywhere, right? So we'll create that climate indoors in a shipping container, drop that shipping container right in the middle of Brooklyn. And inside that container, then it basically feels like Italy, 
right? And you can hold that temperature, that climate very consistently all year round and therefore be able to grow that beautiful Genovese basil 365 days a year. And of course, right. the other advantage then is you're growing that food, you know, literally in the same zip code as the end consumer. Right. And so you can get that food to that consumer literally the same day as you harvest it, right? So the food is really fresh. It lasts a long time. There's zero food waste in the system because the supply chain is really short and the environmental benefits, you know, by basically eliminating those lengthy supply chains are, are, are really fantastic. Yeah, I mean, it's it's very cool when you describe it. And it's funny because this weekend, you know, we were talking about wine. And, you know, I have a friend in, in the UK who's, you know, working in a champagne <laughs> vineyard. Mm-hmm. You know, everything, I mean, wine is moving, right? Everything, the climate obviously is shifting. Right. And this is, I mean, so you were talking about sort of like that peak basil in Italy. And I'm like, or is it in... Canada now, you know, I mean, because everything's just changed. So in a way, it's also you're preserving. It's kind of good that you're doing it now, I guess, right before things really drastically shift. You're you're so right, right? So yeah, I grew up in the UK, and I was actually back there last month. And um, no, I saw that, right? I just, you know, went for a walk with my mom and a dog around the village that she lives, and there's like a vineyard. I'm like, what, what, what the hell? Like, <laughs> what, what's happened to this country in the last, you know, 20, 30 years since I grew up there as a kid? And, and, and actually, when you study what's going on there, it's pretty, pretty horrific in the UK, right? The last report that I read is suggesting that with climate change plus intensive outdoor farming techniques that are eroding the topsoil there, there might only be 50, five zero years worth of harvests left outdoors in the uk and then that's it you cannot grow any more food outdoors in that country in 50 years right i mean hopefully we'll all still be alive then and that's like a very horrifying thing to contemplate yeah um you know so you look at solutions like indoor farming and you know no no one's going to pretend that uh, indoor farms can grow all of the food we could ever possibly eat you know in that in that time frame we're right at the beginning of the technology but we need this to be part of the solution. Right. And like those solutions have got to happen really quickly for sure. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's really true. And it's funny because, you know, I started off with this whole like, rah, 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 tech, rah, but actually, like, yes, that is true. This is necessary. Um, and so, you know, you worked not in food, um, you know, your career. I mean, you have a long and, and really pretty robust background that I shortened significantly um, just to, to make it fit in the, in the hour that we have pretty much. But, you know, how did you, I, my understanding is that you worked at one riot, Walmart acquired it, that led to food that led to square roots. <laughs> so maybe fill in, pretty fill, much in it. Yeah, fill in some of the fill blanks. And how does Kimball <laughs> Musk play into this whole thing? I would like to know. <laughs> All right, got it. So yeah, so I, I, I am that, that tech guy, right, with a PhD in AI. And uh, one riot was doing some clever things in that space, right? A lot of data analytics and, and, and whatnot. Kimball was the co-founder of that company. Okay. I went to work for him. Eventually, I became the CEO of that company. 
and uh, we got acquired, as you said, by Walmart in in, in 2010. And what? So what, what was? Sorry, I have to just ask you. What? No, okay. What was your first day? What What was your first semester class as a PhD in AI? <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know. Like I honestly, I'm like, what would you even? What do you? What do you? What are you studying when you're studying AI? I know that's a really dumb question, but it's just, I'm curious. No, it, it, it's not. And I'm kind of going to date myself a little bit here as well, but this was the mid nineties, right? I mean, right. I think when I started, I didn't even have an email address because essentially they didn't exist for normal people, right? And then when I left, the consumer web was happening and, you know, I got straight into uh, internet companies and entrepreneurship. So trust me you were not the only person to ask that question and certainly in the mid 90s people thought i dropped in from mars when i started talking about this stuff right um but uh you know it, it, it like i say it, it sort of the, the end up on the walmart thing um you know when walmart acquires a, or when a company sort of acquires a technology these sort of silicon valley type acquisitions you know, they they acquire the technology, but then they also bring the team in for a certain period of time as well, right? So I worked at Walmart uh, for a year as part of that transaction. And one of the projects that they had me do, right, from this perspective of data science and whatnot, was study uh, global grocery buying behaviors, right? And at, at Walmart scale, I, I think at the, I think had some like 350 million weekly grocery shoppers, right, or something across Walmart, you know, all over the world at that time. And you know, you're basically sat on top of a data set of the industrial food system, right? You can see people from all over the world wanting to buy food from all over the world. And you know, that industrial food system does a really good job of shipping it to them, right? The the, right. the sort of aha moment for me, I'll always remember I was digging into the UK. I was like, okay, well, what, what, you know, what, who's buying what back home right now, right? And the number one most purchased grocery item that year was bananas. And I was like, okay, well, they sure as hell didn't grow bananas when I was Wait, did you growing see up the, in the UK. Did, did you see, <laughs> so I'm where, so where sorry to interrupt from? you. Wait, did you see the, what's the Jeremy, the guy who was the top gear guy who then did the um clarkson who did the show in the cotswolds and they did you see that show that they did did. and then they had they had to have the local um they had to have the local thing like they he wanted the farm stand and they had avocados and the inspector came and he was like i don't i'm not gonna (laughs) actually do a british accent right now come on no i can't i can't it's really it's like not but you know and he was like i'm rather puzzled like i when did we start growing avocados in the cotswolds anyway Mm -hmm. it's kind of like the banana okay sorry carry on carry on well right so the bananas to me i was just like okay well i don't believe they're grown in the uk even with climate change so like where 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 did they come from right which is sort of a very common question that that you hear people Mm -hmm. ask in the food scene and then you know, that was kind of my realization, right? I realized that most of the food that we eat or the fresh food that we eat in the main is just being shipped in from thousands of miles away. Yeah. And then you start to think about the impact of all that transport, you know, not being great for the planet, as I said, and then all the food waste that happens along those lengthy supply chains. Yeah. And um, it's terrible and just, for those communities too. I mean, we've absolutely. just heard over and over about those farming communities, you know, just getting decimated by 
corporations, you know, industrializing their food system so that they can ship this stuff to consumers who don't want to pay anything for it on the other side. Right. Yeah. So that I agree, right? And so that was the moment I can remember this very clearly. I'm, you know, sitting in my cube in a, in in Walmart, you know, like ten o'clock at night, thinking, okay, well, this is dumb. Like instead of shipping food, let's ship the climate data and recreate these climates, you know, locally. So that was sort of the the sort of you know technology. But then I, you know, I also I'm very comfortable knowing what I don't know or sort of acknowledging that. And like I knew nothing about the food system at all. Or the food industry at all so i picked up the phone to kimball who, mm-hmm. who did right because you know even though we cut our teeth together in tech um you know even when i first met him 15 years ago he was already spending a chunk of time you know frankly was was, was more passionate about his work in food systems right mm-hmm. you know he has a you know chain of restaurants called the kitchen that source food from local farmers and a non-profit big green that was teaching kids how to grow food and learning gardens. And, you know, it was like a really big passion for him. And, um, you know, I sort of was explaining what I was seeing and how awful it, it, it was. And, you know, th- this idea of a sort of technology solution that we could bring to bear on it. And, um, you know, but I knew I didn't know enough about the food system to, you know, be, to, to even attempt to start a business there. And so I actually spent 12 months just like carrying his bag basically to every mm-hmm. meeting that he went to, listening. you know, with every farmer, with every city he was opening a restaurant, whatever it was, just listening and learning and sort of trying to wrap my head around the food system a little bit. And then during that year, we, we sort of began to flesh out the idea for what Square Roots would be. Amazing. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to hear like what happened then. We'll be right back. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, a supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. Corin is proud of their Japanese culture and traditions, but they want you to know that their products are not just for Japanese restaurants. Their knives and tableware bring out the best qualities of food from every culture and fit into every restaurant from French to Pan-Asian to American. And that is why they're located in New York City, where people from every country in the world come to eat. Corin's Tribeca showroom is home to the most extensive collection of Japanese chef knives in the world, including Japan. Stop by to view their exquisitely designed tableware and their rarest natural sharpening stones. They have a whole range of knife services from repair and rust removal to reshaping and realigning. Corin is dedicated to this ideal, bringing the highest quality Japanese design to your table so you can experience the unparalleled quality of Japanese craftsmanship in your home or restaurant. For more information, visit Corin.com. I'm back with Tobias Peggs, CEO and co-founder of Square Roots. Um, Okay, so, you know, what I love about the 12 months of listening and learning is that um, I don't have a PhD in AI, but I do have a master's in in food systems. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And the thing that you learn in the academic study of anything is just to gather information, just to listen and gather and not come in necessarily with your thesis already written, but to see where all of the, you know, the information starts to pop up and and create themes and create, Mm -hmm. you know, um, 
certainly some things kind of stick out as anomalies. And it's honestly how, why I love doing this podcast, you know, just because when you interview 175 people over the course of a few years, you start to see that there are very clear themes um, that emerge. And I think they've helped me, you know, tremendously. Um, And so, you know, one, two, back to you with the listening piece of the journey, what were a couple of things, you know, what, what did you, what were your thoughts going into that year and what was confirmed and what was a little bit uh, confounded and, and what would you say you emerged with at the end of those 12 months? Yeah, it, it's a good question, right? I mean, I think that this idea that local food is better um, you know, firstly, is that okay? Well, well, intuitively, I think we would all say yes, right? But you know, re- really, is it right? Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, talking to local farmers, understanding, you know, really sort of appreciating. I remember spending a bunch of time with Memphis in in Kimball around a project that he had. The theme was strengthening communities through local food, um, and just sort of you know watching how a whole city could be galvanized and and really energized around local food. There was, it's kind of like, it's not really a tangible thing, but it's like, wow, there's some magic here. Like if everybody was on a local food system, you like, know, yeah. it would just be fantastic, right? So there, there was a bit of that, but, but you know, Kimball's really good in terms of sort of, you know, making you, you, you sort of think about it, a couple of big questions, right? So his, you know, he got square roots understood or, you know, got sort of where I was coming at from the technology. And he was like, okay, well, A, can this be a big business? And then B, how do you make the biggest positive impact on people and planet as you do it, right? Otherwise, for someone like him, it's just not interesting, right? It's like kind of moonshot or don't bother. Um, and that, that's a very intoxicating environment to brainstorm. Yeah, in, for sure. Honestly, right? And, you know, I think on the business side, you know, the, the, the sort of ambition here is that one day, we want to feed literally every consumer on the planet with locally grown fresh produce, right? And, and also do that all year round. And that, that's a big business. Have you done that? I mean, it strikes me that you've probably done the calculation on if you have, you know, this many people, then you need this many. And, you know, mm-hmm. you want each farm to serve, you know, 250 miles or whatever, you know, that's mm-hmm. what Union mm-hmm. Square uses is local. Mm-hmm. Then how many of these do you have to have? And do you have some map somewhere on a, on a, whiteboard or a computer where you have all of the different farms that you need. Yeah, I'm actually looking at it right now in my little spare bedroom, which has been sort of square roots world HQ through the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Um yeah, I mean literally there is a farm in every city in every country around the world eventually. Right. And uh, you know, this will kind of be a a a lifetime of effort. There's no doubt about that. Right. People want locally grown food right the demand for that is huge it's certainly a mega trend um you know whether people want it because it's tastier or it lasts longer or for the environmental reasons um you know there are a lot of sort of tailwinds here you know to use that that sort of business speak cliche Mm -hmm. um you know this is not a sort of hipster foodie trend that's gonna go away anytime soon right this is you know the the world's changing We, we all want local food so, you know, when you talk to investors and like, well, what's the TAM? You know, like, well, mm-hmm. you know, literally Everyone. 10 billion people in 2050. Yes, yeah, like, there's a pretty big TAM. Hit. And, and then, 
you know, back to your original question, right? Some some of the other things. So then that that we learned that year, and it, it was really then around the impact, right? So there were sort of a couple of things really around sort of people and planet, right? You know, there's that triple bottom line thing, right? How can mm-hmm. this be a good business? It's also good for people and planet. On the people side, actually related to your question, right? How many farms do you eventually need? Well, let's say that's tens of thousands, you know, in every city and every country around the world. One of the things we realized is that at that scale, there aren't enough farmers who also understand the technology for us to hire, right, to staff these farms. And so we sort of realized very early that, you know, we needed to invest a lot in In the people. um, in people, right, creating pathways for especially young sort of tech-enabled people, tech-excited people to enter the agriculture industry. You know, one of the things I found here was when we were doing that research is the average age of a farmer in the United States is 58. Mm-hmm. I was going to say 60, and, yeah. All right, and that, that actually gets worse in international markets, right? The average age of a farmer in Japan is 68. Yep. So in addition to all of the problems of the food system that we can articulate, you know, waste and pesticides and greenhouse gases, there's this like demographic time bomb that is about to detonate across the industry, right? Which is who the hell is going to grow all the food in 10 years when these people retire, right? It's just this gaping gap. And so we sort of realized that, all right, well, we, we need to do our part here to train you know, to make it exciting, to make it accessible and train young people to come into the industry. So that that, that was a big thing that we did. Um, that, that was kind of one of the takeaways. I didn't necessarily think about coming in. Um, you know, and then, and then, you know, I think implicitly we, 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 you know, knew that this would be a, you know, quote, more sustainable solution, more responsible solution. Um, but, uh, you know, I really didn't appreciate at that time that, you know, I've said it before, right, in the industrial food system that we currently have, right, that is responsible for 30% of greenhouse gases. And yet it is also at existential risk due to climate change. Yep. Right. As temperatures increase and we get more floods and, you know, et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera, right, it becomes increasingly difficult, risky to, to grow that food outdoors. And so, you know, there's a big irony there, right, which is industrial agriculture itself is sort of one of the biggest contributors to the very climate change that's threatening its own viability, right? And it's like, oh, my God, okay, whatever we do here, we have to figure out a pathway for, you know, carbon neutral food production, right? How do we, you know, minimize the the resources that we're using here, not just with sort of land and, and water, but also, you know, energy as well, right? How do we sort of figure out a way where we can get these farms off the grid and not burn fossil fuels? And, you know, I think, you know, a lot of people have got, you know, a general idea that we have to do things better for the environment. But I think it was that year of research where I went really deep and sort of really began to understand like how problematic yeah. <laughs> the situation that we're in and now I almost feel like now there's an obligation to do something about it yeah I, I mean I think you know it's funny because I took Joan Gussow's class um I was one of the very lucky people who had the opportunity to audit her Columbia Teachers College class and she mm-hmm. you know she's like the mac daddy and the queen bee um of local And it's funny because, you know, she spent so much of her career trying to 
convince people. Fortunately, she got the word out to Michael Pollan, and then he was able to sort of spread it through Omniverse Dilemma. But, you know, she spent the bulk of her career trying to dismantle the idea that somehow, you know, organic with a capital O was actually better than local. And between the USDA and, you know, the organic capital O, you know, industry up against, you know, small local farmers that certainly didn't have time to fill out paperwork nor, you know, create a campaign around local food or even have the technology or the the ability to communicate with one another. Um, I think your point about people wanting local food and it not being, you know, this has been something that has been sort of on the radar since the Mm seventies, but hasn't really gotten the attention that it needs in part because the organic industry kind of stepped in and, and decided that 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 was what it was. People, mm-hmm. you know, end up being a little bit focused on, you know, gluten-free and keto and this and that and the other. And, you know, I think in a way what you're doing is you're, you know, a lot of people who are, are food people are wondering at what point do we just make ourselves somewhat self-sufficient so that, you know, if slash when the, you know, shit hits the fan, you know, we kind of go back to these regional growing bartering practices or whatever it is, but what you're doing <laughs> oh is, no, I mean, in a way, right? Like that's why you do have, I mean, the, I, I think actually the average age of a farmer has been brought down over the last 10 or 15 years in this country because you have young people not going into industrial farming, but trying to recreate some sort of semblance of a healthy food ecosystem in their own small limited ways and that's not scalable to your point but enabling them or you know the I mean millions of people who find themselves sort of technologied out of the workforce with this um, Mm -hmm. technology and the skill set is I mean that's a whole other layer to it I mean it's really it's cool. I knew I knew this was going to be different for me, but I don't think I knew how how cool and fun it was going to be. And so yeah. going back a little bit, was was it like, okay, so we have to build our first one. And once we build our first one, we have to figure out how we're going to get the stuff to people. I mean, because cuz you can go to the, like the big picture and the moonshot and mm-hmm. Kimball and you know, a gazillion, every city and the whole thing. But like at the end of the day, you do have to start with. Yep. What? Completely agree. And, uh, you know, I think this is where actually coming from that technology background can help a little bit Mm -hmm. because, you know, that is a situation I've been in multiple times, right? It's like, Hey, you got this big idea that's going to change the world. What, what does day one look like? Just get right. going, right? And there's sort of not too much fear around doing that. Um, you know, in tech, we would call that the MVP, right? The minimum viable product. Just mm-hmm. get something done and get it in the hands of people and see what they think. Um, and that that's pretty much the approach that we took at Square Roots, right? So we started off uh, six years ago, I guess. And we literally stood up 
you know, a handful of shipping containers literally in an empty parking lot in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, for the first year, all we really sort of focused on was um, building some software that could train young people, you know, even though there's a zero experience, right? Maybe you've never even grown a houseplant before. And could our software sort of, you know, guide you through the day to day, you know, activities so that you could grow amazing food, right? And, 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 sort of at the end of the first couple of months, you're like, okay, yep, we can train people to grow this fantastic food and we think it tastes amazing. Now, phase two, all right, let's mm-hmm. see if anybody else thinks it's amazing, right? And so you start then trying to sell it to chefs or you start trying to sell it to to, to retail chains and you, and you go from there, right? And then you have a business that looks, you know, like a real business in New York City. And then the next phase is, okay, well, how do we figure out how to do this in multiple locations, right? And you just kind of keep going through different phases. Um, you know, one of one of the things I learned from Kimball a, a long time ago, he was he said to me, you know, imagine the next fifty years and plan for the next six months, and everything in between is kind of irrelevant, right? Because you honestly don't know what's going to happen. And so we sort of, you know, take these like you know, six month sprints just to get to the, the next phase and the next phase. And, you know, that is a sort of environment that we're like a working style or an environment that, that we're really comfortable with. Yeah. I mean, I think that's maybe the quote of the, of the, of the podcast. Sorry, it's not yours, but I'll. <laughs> that's okay. I'm used to it. Hey, when you have a co-founder like Kimball, you're used to not being the one. I mean, we can make fine. it, you can make it 80 years if you want, and then we can make it your quote and we won't have to tag Kimball. But I guess part of that is, you know, okay, so A, what was in that? What were you growing? B, who, you know, I believe you have a relationship, a partnership with a distributor of some sort. Did that start then? Did, was that the result of figuring out, you know, it's actually a whole different business? I mean, you have many different businesses. You have a tech business, a labor intensive, you know, um, mm-hmm. you know, business, right? Like that's sort of akin to, you know, when CPG companies have their own factories or their own production facilities, mm-hmm. you know, the way mm-hmm. that you engage with and motivate people who are working on the factory floor is traditionally different from the way that mm-hmm. you engage with and motivate, you know, a director of sales. You have a um, consumer brand that mm-hmm. now is its own thing. And you have this whole sort of weird and, very frustrating at times, Luddite distribution system, even if it is, you know, local um, in New York, where, you know, we're notorious for our small, narrow streets and, um, you know, questionable distribution (laughs) practices. So um, what, how did you tackle all of those things? And I know that's a very big question. So I'll leave you to yeah, down. no, and I think I'll, I'll focus on the distribution stuff uh, quickly. But you're right, right? I sort of think of Square Roots as a, you know, a quote unquote, a full stack business, right? You're right. You know, we've got you know brilliant engineers who are building software and hardware, and then we have construction teams who are deploying these farms, and then you know we're, we're hiring farm teams and training these farms. And to your point, you know, we pack the food, we 
we in some cases distribute the food and then we got like a really amazing brand there um so yeah there's 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 a lot to manage the 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 distribution side is kind of interesting, right? So we started with New York and you're talking about the quirks of New York and, and actually mm-hmm. uh, for, for us, that was to our advantage, right? So one of the, in New York, we sell to grocery retail stores and uh, we do DSD, right? Direct store delivery. And we sell to I don't know, like 200 grocery retail stores in New York, something like that. What I do know is they're all within five miles of the farm. Wow. And so what that means is that we don't need to use trucks, right? We actually have a fleet of battery-powered uh, tricycles, right, with, like, cold storage boxes on the front. Yeah. And we literally can cycle around town and distribute the, the, the produce, right? So it's sort of right, zero emissions cool. distribution. Super cool. Absolutely is not going to work in any other American city, right? right. New but York MSG, is unique yes. on that. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. And, and so, you know, as we figured out the New York business, we're like, great, New York, this is awesome. How do we start to think about this in other cities in America? We we, we sort of quickly realized, okay, we're, we're going to need some partners here who really understand this world, you know, like way, way better than we do. And, and I think probably the most successful partnership that we have is with a company called Gordon Food Service. Um, you know, I'm not sure if you've come across them, right? They're one of North America's largest broadline food distributors. They're 125 years old this year, mm-hmm. um, still a family-owned business, right? It's an amazing company. I think they've got like 20,000 employees or something. You know, this wow. is like a big, a big company. Right. And, and, and you know, despite being that big and, and frankly that old, they're still really innovative, right? And they're open to working with crazy little startups like Square Roots, mm-hmm. which they do. And they're fantastic partners, right? So the way that relationship works is, we now deploy our indoor farms literally on their distribution centers all across the country. Wow. And so then as we, right, so as we harvest the food, it goes straight into their system. And now they, as a food distributor, are getting, you know, same day of harvest, super fresh produce to all of the restaurants and chefs and, you know, all of their customers Um, that they service from those distribution centers. So it's a really, really wonderful partnership that we have with them. And are they primarily um, food service? Do they also have grocery? And also, are they primarily produce? Or do they also have, you know, shelf stable and other things? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so they're broad line. So they have, you know, the, the, you know, everything that the kitchen needs, shelf stable, fresh, you know, you name it, they've got it. Um, and then, yeah, in the main, they're focused on food service. Uh, they actually also have their own um, retail stores as well. Oh, wow. um, but for example, last week, we just opened or we cut the ribbon on a new uh, farm with them. It's actually the biggest farm we've deployed to, to date in Kenosha, just, just north of Chicago. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, from that facility, probably 50% of the food there will go into the, the Gordon Food Service distribution system. And then 50%, we will either do DSD or we'll work with local grocery distributors and get it out to grocery stores you know, probably from Chicago to Milwaukee, right? That's sort right. of, you know, 100-mile radius. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's incredible. I guess one of the things I'd like you to share, if you have any insight on this, is that a lot of times the founders that I'm speaking to are, you know, what I think of as like a cigarette boat, 
right? Or a little, they're fast, they're speedy, they're little, they're able to pivot quickly. They're very Mm -hmm. nimble. They have a bunch of people who aren't too specialized, who can figure stuff out. They're willing to take chances and risks and, you know, and they're little. Um, Yep. It all sounds very familiar. (laughs) Yeah. And then they're like the larger ships, you know, I remember Mm -hmm. I was on a sailboat um, I'm dating myself too, but I was a senior in high school in 1990. Um, and, and I went on this little sailboat and I remember I kept hearing this noise. It was like, like this, <laughs> I was like, I was in the middle of, you know, the co- like off the coast of Maine and I had no idea what the noise was. And then I look up and I kid you not, there was a 80 foot wall in front of me that was the front of a ship. Okay. And I I mean we were fortunately I'm still here to tell the story so like we moved uh pretty quickly but mm-hmm. it was one of the it was one of the most bizarre terrifying things and I'll never forget it but I often think of it because they don't know how to work with us, these big ships, whether they're Cahey right. right. and UNFI or they're, you know, I mean, you know, dare I say Walmart or, you know, and I, and I feel like there's this group of people who are like, like, that would be great. We should work with more emerging brands and we should be more innovative. And this is where the, you know, they get all the Mintel, they get more data than we do. You know, they know what consumers are looking for. They know mm-hmm. what's on trend. They know what's micro macro. Um, but they just have such a hard time, you know, lining up their, their big ship with our little boat. Um, and so they can do, they, I'm sorry, I interrupted. The, the, no, no, the, I'm, the, no the I want you, I, I want you to interrupt me. You, I'm, I'm asking you, um, how do you, what, have you learned anything from working with the big ships and, and what's you know, anything that you can sort of, any helpful ideas I think that you can give, because I think it's very frustrating for a lot of people that I, I hear from. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, listen, I will say straight up that Gordon Food Service are, are really special. The, the CEO there, uh, Rich Woloski, is a, you know, real, like, amazing forward thinker. And, you know, perhaps of all of the big ships, they're like, they're, they've been you know, very, very wonderful to work with, right? But to, to answer the question more generally, I think it's funny, actually, you know, a lot of this will come from being that tech guy that you talked mm-hmm. about right up front, right? This sort of biz dev, this business development approach to fueling growth with the with the megacorps, like it's actually a pretty common mindset in tech, right? Um you know, when we were at One Riot, right, doing with this tiny little company with 20 people, right? But I'd have no problem walking up to, you know, Twitter and doing a deal with them so that we could analyze their data and then turning around to, you know, Yahoo or Google and figuring out how we could augment their search results with what people were saying on Twitter about certain topics. And, you know, sort of no no worries approaching these kind of mega-sized public corks and basically explaining where I think we could add some value to their strategic initiatives in a way that will help us both grow our business, right? I used to call it one plus one equals three, right? And if you mm-hmm. can present that formula, like who's going to say no? But the, the the key thing there is as that, you know, to use your your terminology, right, as the little cigarette boat, 
you can't just kind of bump into you know the largest ship and say well here we are figure out how to work with us like it is your job to figure out okay where is this big ship going Mm. what is important to them is there any way that i can line up my little cigarette boat to nudge it along slightly faster in the direction that it knows it already wants to go in right and that that's this whole idea about one plus one equals three right it's kind of up to you to present this is this is what we offer and this is why it makes sense in terms of the strategic you know, initiatives that you have planned for the year that clearly I have done the research on. And, right. you know, I'm kind of aware of and like, this is how we can help you. And if you present it that way, I find the conversations go a lot better. Yeah, I like to read um, like every, you know, most of the big retailers have sort of like their quarterly reports or like their annual plans. And I like to honestly just like lift sentences out of them and put them in my sales deck. Mm-hmm. You know, keywords like that they have seen now over and over because they've been hit over the head with this plan. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like you're looking for blah, 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 blah. Like page one is like, we have a blah, 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 you know? Yes, um, exactly. And yep. I mean, I think, I think they get excited. I think it's the implementation piece or, you know, sometimes the strategic vision. And it sounds like this is where like Gordon is in a really good spot. Sometimes there's someone at the top who's like, yes, yes, absolutely. Yes. And then by the time it gets to the boots on the ground who have to like actually make it work, there's mm-hmm. resistance or I don't understand why we're doing this or Ugh, here's another one of, you know, Mr. Gordon's big ideas or, <laughs> right. you know, whatever it is. So it's, it's, um, you know, it is. Do, do, yeah. do you know? Do you know what? Though? I can remember this really clearly. You know, the second or third meeting that I had with Rich, he turned around and said to me, "Why would you want to work with the Gordon Food Service?" And I was like, "What? What? What? what like, what, what do you mean? Like, of course I want to work with you. You could, right. you know, transform my business. Like, shouldn't the question be the other way around? Like, why do you want to work with this tiny little company?" And, and actually, what he meant was. You know, are we going to be the right partner for you at this stage in your growth? Right. And let, let's put a framework around that conversation, right? You understand the sort of strategy and the upgrade one one equals three and all of that. Now the boots on the ground, right, to, to use your frame. You know, let's have a look at our company values and our company MOs, right? Are we both sort of, you know, committed to moving fast and innovating and, you know, never say die and, you know, the two of us, even though we're very different size companies, you know, Gordon Food Service at that time probably had 20,000 people. Square Roots mm-hmm. at that time probably had 20 people, right? Very different size companies, but actually a lot of shared values and a lot of shared MOs about how we would tackle projects. And from that conversation, you look at it and think, oh, do you know what? When there is a bump in the road, which there will be, it, it, we both feel very confident that our two companies are going to figure out how to solve this. Right. And I think had, had those values and those MOs mm-hmm. or that overlap between the values and the MOs, had that not been so apparent so early in the conversation, like, then maybe my answer to his question would have been, well, I'm not sure you are right right now. And we, we, you know, we should step away. Yeah. But I think that, that, that was so important. Like, I, of course, you know, with these big ambitious projects and a big company, like, Something is going to go wrong, right? And yep. you need to know, okay, well, we we both we both solve problems the same way, 
right? Same values, the same, oh, like we'll figure this out together. And that, that was a really sort of, um, you know, worthwhile exercise going through actually. Yeah, no, that's, that's very helpful. Um, and I love what you said about, you know, the onus is on us to, you yeah. know, just like we're trying to prove our value to the consumer, we're trying to prove our value to all the partners. Um, mm -hmm. And now I want to switch gears a little bit because I um, read a blog post that you wrote. And, you know, I just literally before I was recording with you, I was having a call with a fellow founder who is pretty unhappy because basically they are switching over to plastic from glass, but they have to. And at the end of the day, life cycle wise, it actually is better. And, mm -hmm. But the messaging and the thing and, um, you know, we live in a very reductive culture. I don't need to tell you that. And, um, you know, what does sustainable actually mean? and how the consumer understands sustainable, even, you know, the discussion we were having around local, mm -hmm. you know, there's still people who don't even know really what that means. Um, you know, they, there's just a lot of misinformation, a lot of reductive information, and these mm -hmm. are complicated topics, right? Yeah. And, you, you know, you can't, um, if you're going to be putting something into the world, chances are it's going to have, I mean, you're not going and living in a yurt alone and growing your own potatoes. So you're <laughs> going to create some negative impact along mm -hmm. the way. Um, hopefully, you know, better on the positive side. Um, and, and you were writing that, you know, you really wanted to dig in and, and, and learn more about, you know, where are you creating that negative impact? Um, mm -hmm. You know, wh what is the big, what is the big, if there is something to work on, what's the thing to work on? And it looked like the actual construction of building yep. the new farms. Um, and so I'm interested in why you did the work, how you did the work, and probably most importantly, how you're educating people on the work that you are doing. Mm, yeah, it's a big, big, big topic for sure. I think, um, you know, a lot of people in indoor farming, certainly, and, you know, more, more generally the, the food space, I think, you know, people kind of wave their hands around around sustainability. Um, yeah, but frankly, there, there's sort of not a lot of hard data or specific targets being mentioned, right? And right. again, talking about controlled environment agriculture for sure right there was a recent um survey the global ca census report people go read it but the conclusion there was that our industry is very susceptible to excessive greenwashing right it's mm -hmm. like oh my god yes I like we we um you know we, we sort of got to figure this out right and so i think you know like say implicitly for us you know local no transport it's like okay well this is better for the planet surely but um um you know what? Where 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 should we focus? And um, you know how how much do we need to do? Um, and so for us, the the focus, I think, it came down. You know, talking with a bunch of really smart people around you know topics like ESG and sustainability and all of that. But my conclusion, sort of about a year ago, was what it all boils down to essentially is that we got to reduce our carbon emissions. Right, we're pumping. CO2 or CO2E into the atmosphere, it's trapping heat, 
swarming the planet and we're running headfirst into a climate disaster, right? It's That's easy to understand. Uh, very easy. And then once you're sort of that focused on it, then, okay, well, the only way right. out here is to stop pumping CO2 into the atmosphere, right? Yeah. And then eventually figure out how to bring some of that back. Um, and so, okay, now we're a little bit clearer on where, what we should tackle. Right. Right. But, Got it. but, yep. but, but then you think, okay, well, you know, how bad is it right now? Um, and so one of the projects that we did, uh, late last year was to work with a, an organization called Watershed. Um, they're a great company actually that basically I'm not going to do them justice, but they sort of integrate with your finance department so they can look at like literally everything you're spending money on. Mm-hmm. And then convert that into a CO2 footprint, right? Sort of in line with greenhouse gas protocol standards and a whole bunch of other kind of science that they use and standards that they bring to bear. But the end result is that as square roots, we could then quantify mm-hmm. what our CO2 footprint was across our entire operations in a year, right? And the answer to that was 4,700 metric tons of CO2 in 2021, <laughs> right? which it didn't mean anything to me, uh, right? But sort of to make it a bit more tangible, that would be the equivalent of driving across the country and back about 2,000 times in a, you know, gas-powered sedan, right? And so okay. we're like, okay, right. well, how do we get that to zero? Right. Right, let's put a plan in place to get that to zero. And then as you were saying, right, when you dig in, we were like, okay, well, what, where were the biggest culprits, right? So actually construction, right, building the farms ourselves because we use steel. Right, and we use concrete, and those things are pretty nasty in terms of their emissions during the productions. Right, so that was almost mm-hmm. half of our emissions. So now we have future farms that we're building. Um, you know, we're using sort of carbon capturing concrete for the foundation pads, right, and all sorts of really interesting things. So mm-hmm. that's kind of cool. Mm-hmm. The the second bucket for us was electricity consumption. Right, you know, in these farms we've got grow lights to help the plants grow. Mm-hmm. And right. um, actually, this is a, another great thing we're doing with Gordon Food Service. We're actually building solar farms with battery um, storage on every facility where we're building the farms with GFS. So yeah, that, um, right, so within time, then all of the farms that we build with them will be, you know, off the grid with on-site mm-hmm. renewables. And then the third bucket for us was delivery, right? You know, I talked about the battery-powered e-trikes in New York City. Well, elsewhere, we use trucks. Um, mm-hmm. right that was about six percent of our emissions um and so you start to th- frankly you know the the inflation reduction act right it's got some really interesting tax breaks around electric vehicles and so it's like okay well now we tackle that right but right but, but the the good news is then as you put these programs in place and you set people off on projects to find the solutions you're also able to quantify the effort right i think a yeah. lot of sort of sustainability initiative sort of flounder because it's like okay well, that's really cool you know you're capturing rainwater you're doing this sort of mm-hmm. like, okay, well, what what you know and, and all of those things we need but it's like okay, well what is the impact <laughs> right if and it, it look- makes yeah it makes it all right. much more confusing for the consumer right because they're hearing all these different things and whoever says it the loudest and the tweetiest and gets the most media to talk about totally. it you yep. know gets gets the voice in a way, um, which just, you know, that's, yeah. that's, that's always been agriculture's challenge, you know, I mean, I think and, that's right. I mean, know. I'll be honest with you, we're, we're not particularly upfront with this work when we're communicating to our customer, 
right? right? Or, you know, I mean, frankly, we don't really talk too much about the tech or we don't talk too much about the, you know, programs to train young farmers. Right? What our end customer cares about is, does, it taste does good? this food taste amazing, right? Does it last a long time in my refrigerator? Is it sensibly priced, right? Competitive with what I can already buy on the shelf. And that's mm-hmm. really what I care about, right? Now, yep. once you've then bought the product and experienced the product, you know, oh, this is a cool brand and I want to learn more. When you want to dig in and you read more about us, sure, right? You can read about a farmer training program or you can read about this pathway to, to zero CO2 emissions. Um, so it's not, uh, you know, I don't think we would ever think of sort of leading our marketing with that message. Right. For us, it's an obligation. But as it happens, that obligation also improves the business. Right. Yep. Energy, for example, right? You know, we're plugged into the grid right now at eight cents a kilowatt hour. Well, guess what? That's going to be a lot cheaper when we've got on site renewables, right? So, not only is it the right thing to do for the planet, it also helps our bottom line, right? And I, I, I yeah. really uh, sort of, you know, as a company, we spend a lot of time making sure that these sort of impact initiatives that we have, whether that's sustainability or other things, they're sort of in lockstep with the business initiatives, yeah. right? So that for some people, they can wake up in the morning and think, you know, the more impact that I make, the, the better the business, right? And other people mm, yeah. will wake up and think, okay, the more I drive this business, the more opportunity we've got to create impact, right? So it doesn't matter sort of which way your brain is wired, everything's lined up and, you know, it's all, it's all good for the business. I mean, that's, I think that's the best place to end. And it's, that's the dream, right? When, you know, there's this whole thing right now, I have a slide, another slide in one of my decks. that's like, you don't have to choose between better for you and better for the planet. And if you're put in that position to choose, then you've already lost, right? Like Mm -hmm. it really shouldn't be one or the other. And it shouldn't also going back to triple bottom line, it shouldn't be you have to choose between the health of the business and doing the right thing. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and when you don't, and when it, when those things all line up, there's a flow to what you're doing and a, and a clarity that just resonates throughout the whole business. And I think people can taste it. I really do. Um, (laughs) That's just me being a little bit of a hippie. No, um, I think you're right. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you. <think> you're right. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on the show. I learned a lot. Um, this was really fun. And again, it was a little outside of my comfort zone. So I appreciate um, the education and, and um, just what you're building. It's really, really cool. Really cool. Thank you. It was really fun to talk to you about this stuff. Amazing. And Armin, as always, thank you for engineering today's show. Um, listeners, as always, I've gotten a lot of requests for my user guide. Um, so if you don't know what that is, you can go to my LinkedIn. I wrote about it there. Um, I definitely think it's a good idea for everyone building teams. Um, maybe in any relationship, I also sent it to my kids, which was kind of funny. Um, but I appreciate all the comments and the questions and the DMs and everything. So, um, thank you. I'm glad it's helping and I'll be back next week with another episode of in the sauce. In the sauce is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to heritage radio network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritage radio slash subscribe.